banish the priests of high finance, return power to the people, and secret conversations that ensure Aussie voters can't change foreign policy. Coming up on today's Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 22nd of July 2022. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party researcher Richard Barden. Welcome, Richard. Thanks, Elisa. To this lovely Melbourne weather. Mm, delightful. <laughs> nice and cold, but we're going to warm things up with today's show. We're going to be talking about uh, the Reserve Bank of Australia review process. It's just been announced by our Treasurer, and we're going to discuss. Secondly, the 30-year foreign interference operation dictating our policy. Um, don't forget, if you like the show, hit the like button, subscribe and share as widely as you can to get the word out. But straight on to the first topic for today. Banish the priests of high finance, return power to the people. And before we get into the guts of this, uh, I want to first talk about the returning power to the people component quickly to get people all of our people and activists out there mobilised on what we need to do to change um, what we're about to discuss and to take advantage of this RBA review that we'll talk about in a moment. Uh, and that is the postal bank campaign because our idea of a, a people's postal bank is not just somewhere where you can access cash, but it's a conduit to a much broader national banking policy to begin to inject the credit into local communities and into major nationwide infrastructure building projects that can completely transform the economy of this nation. So uh, what I would just refer people to is the media release we put out this week, which is headlined, The Economic Solution Every Australian Can Get Behind. Uh, and what is focused on in there are the marching orders of what we need everybody to do because uh, the new parliament is sitting as of next week. And of course, there's a lot of new members of parliament who aren't aware at all of this public banking proposal of ours. Mm -hmm. And they need to be made aware of that. And there's going to be a great degree of openness, I would think, from a lot of these new, particularly independent MPs. Mm, the largest cross bench in history. That's right. So, you know, that gives us an enormous uh, leverage to build the support that we already had, you know, from every party in the parliament um, to back up the legislation uh, that Bob Catter will be tabling in the parliament as soon as it's humanly possible. Um, so we've got links in the press release to the um, emails. You can email your MP, letting them know they should be supporting this bill. Phone numbers are all there. Uh, we will have a delegation with Robert Barwick going to Canberra next week and we want to be meeting with as many of these MPs. So um, if you, you know, send us any feedback, if you get good feedback from anyone, particularly one of these new MPs, let us know. Uh, what we always find when we're ringing MPs is it's much easier to get a meeting with them if they say, oh, well, I've, been, I've had several people call me about this, so they think, oh, I better, you know, make that uh, appointment. Uh, and you can also use our flyer, which we'll put links to below, uh, to you know send to your MP, which is an excellent, um, very visual description of what this policy represents and what it would do. 
So with that said, we'll get into the guts of what this RBA review is about, which is rather interesting. Of course, it's been talked about for a while now. Mm. And uh, the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, uh, made an announcement uh, a couple of days ago. He announced the first wide-ranging review of the Reserve Bank of Australia since the current monetary policy arrangements were instituted in the 1990s. And boy, is it overdue, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, because basically since the 1980s, all the regulation of our monetary system went out the window and it was just full laissez-faire, let the market do what it wants. Um, but the question will be, what are they going to look into? Mm. And what is their intention going to be? Because they'll never hold an inquiry of this type or a Royal Commission without knowing what outcome they want at the get-go, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it's supposed to report by March 2023. So um, in the future, we'll come back with specific marching orders on how we want people to um, interact with this review because they have stated that they want to uh, seek public response to this. But just to uh, say at the outset that they've appointed a panel of three experts to lead this review. Uh, Carolyn Wilkins, who's an external member of the Financial Policy Committee of the Bank of England and former Senior Deputy Governor to the Bank of Canada. So Mm. that does not bode well at all. Professor Renee Fry-McKibben, who's an economist at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. And Dr Gordon de Brouwer, economist and secretary for public sector reform with 35 years experience in public policy and administration in Australia, including at Treasury and the Reserve Bank. Mm. Now, of course, they've opted to, you know, go with what what they would call external... Ex- external experts because they're supposed to, you know, impartial, unbiased. Well, you know, everyone has biases. I mean, it's part of the human condition, but it's it really, you know, highlights this obsession with central bank independence, right? Everything to do with central banking has to be independent of the government. Mm. And in fact, the now shadow treasurer, Angus Taylor, is in the papers in the uh, Financial Review today saying, uh, objecting to uh, Prime Minister Albanese's comments of the day before, saying that the, uh, you know, that the Reserve Bank needs to be careful it doesn't overreach with these interest rate hikes that it's doing. Perfectly innocuous comments, just mm. an observation. Um, and here's Taylor saying, oh, I would hate to think that the, that the you know, uh, Prime Minister is interfering with the independence of the of the central bank, the reserve bank, that's been sacrosanct for many decades. Sacrosanct, he actually said that. Wow. Um, And uh, saying that he should focus on things he can control. Well, Mm. we've got news for Angus and it's all bad because the prime minister by legislation, by law, can't absolutely can control what the reserve bank uh, does and what it directs the private banks to do. Yeah, that's right. And we have to make sure, the people have to make sure that our governments take control of monetary policy, of fiscal policy, and, you know, do with it the, what is good for the, the future mm. of this country. They have to direct um, banking. You know, if we don't have control of banking, as John Curtin said, we're only governing, governing in but a second degree. Mm. Um, so what we want to go through now is some of the details which are raised in the initial terms of reference, which is... Um, I'm not sure if they'll put out something that's a bit more detailed, but it's a it's a brief terms of reference at this stage, at least, as is up on the website in the release put out by the Treasurer. Um, 
So I'll just put this up on the screen and I just want to mention four things in this, in these first two points. So it says here that the Reserve Bank's objectives as outlined in the Reserve Bank Act 1959 and the Statement on the Conduct of Monetary Policy, including the continued appropriateness of the inflation targeting framework. So that's up for reassessment. And secondly, uh, the interaction of monetary policy with fiscal and macroprudential policy, including during crises and when monetary policy space is limited. That will go through these factors that I want to raise one by one. Firstly is the fact that they raised the Reserve Bank Act 1959, which is not surprising because it's the governing legislation of the Reserve Bank. But reassessing it is interesting because there's a few things I wanted to point out. Firstly, which is um, standard, is just that the preamble commits Australian monetary policy to fostering, quote, the economic prosperity and welfare of the people of Australia. Now, of course, uh, there's large scope for argument that they've mm. broached that, every which yes, way the, in a Sunday. The definitions of um, economic prosperity have been rather skewed of late. <laughs> Absolutely. So, I mean, that that's a fundamental thing which needs to remain, but it needs to be fulfilled. Um, the second thing I want to raise about the Banking Act 1959 is that on the 16th of February in uh, Senate estimates hearings, Green Senator Nick McKim raised the fact um, with the RBA, they were being questioned, that the Banking Act 1959 gives the Reserve Bank powers to direct bank lending, so they can tell the banks, all the private banks, what to do, quote, to ensure that at all times the credit resources of the nation are put to best use. Now, the RBA confirmed in answers to those questions that, yes, the bank does have the power to do that and that it's a remnant of the old Commonwealth Bank. Mm. Um, thirdly, another thing that comes up with this Banking Act is that the Banking Act 1959 also outlines a procedure in Section 11 for resolving disputes between the Reserve Bank and government over monetary policy, which ultimately, quote, allows the government to determine policy in the event of a material difference. So if there were to be a dispute over how monetary policy should be deployed, the government has the upper hand. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is based on the findings of the 1936 Royal Commission, so we can thank Ben chiefly for this, uh, which stated that the Federal Parliament is ultimately responsible for monetary policy and the government of the day is the executive of the Parliament. Mm. And we can also thank chiefly for legislating it in 1945 as Treasurer, which that's, the power that's that right. remains in the in 59 Act. Banking Act is yeah. where it came from, absolutely. Um, now, the other thing they mentioned, just going back to the terms of reference, though, in conjunction with the Reserve Bank Act 1959, is something that might be a bit more um, obscure to people, and that is the Statement on the Conduct of Monetary Policy. And the resolution power that I mentioned, which gives the government the upper hand in any dispute process, is also expressed in those statements, which are regular statements. They're issued not necessarily every year, but every couple of years or something, jointly by the Treasurer and the Reserve Bank Governor. And I think they stopped putting it in there somewhere in the 2000s. But up until quite uh, recently, they regularly restated that this was a fact, that the government mm. did have the upper hand in any kind of dispute. Yeah, I think the most recent one was about five or six years ago. Right. Um, now, also, since 1996, these statement of um, conduct uh, statements indicate have indicated a shift 
to focus on what they call price stability, including inflation, but only, quote unquote, taking account of employment and economic activity. Mm. So there's been a shift, and we've written about this in the Australian Alert Service, particularly since the 1981 Campbell Inquiry, where inflation has been <clears throat> the top priority, overshadowing and downplaying, as one um, expert on this subject area has described it, downplaying full employment. So in other words, um, there's been a focus on the Reserve Bank acting to mm. foster bubbles, basically, yeah. and you know that doesn't interfere with the inflation concept because they don't include housing or anything in inflation, so they can stoke those bubbles as much as they want. Yeah. Financial markets first, real people distant second. Mm. So they can pretend they're keeping inflation in order because the, the, all the speculative bubbles can keep blowing out of control while they're putting up interest rates and hurting the average citizen. Um, but they don't have to have much um, regard for making sure economic activity and employment is boosted because over the years since Campbell, um, that's been the mandate of the Reserve Bank and it's just been a gradual shift that's taken place. So the fact that uh, the terms of reference actually says that they will consider or assess the continuing appropriateness of the inflation targeting framework, I think is actually rather interesting. Mm. Now, which way they're going to come down on it is going to be the question mark because we're talking about these Bank of England and, you know, top economists. Um, mm. But again, we can weigh in and we can get these a lot of these senators that have been intervening and, and that's what I wanted to talk about next actually because where they raise in the terms of reference the interaction of monetary policy with fiscal and macroprudential policy including during crises and when monetary policy space is limited because this is what a number of Australian senators have raised mm. specifically and have grilled Guy de Bell who was the Deputy Reserve Bank guy until yeah, recently. Yeah, Deputy Governor. Deputy Governor and um, and then Michelle Bullock uh, after that. Uh, they've extensively and ruthlessly grilled him on this question of why can't the Reserve Bank put money into infrastructure instead of, you know, when they put out QE and when they um, put more money through the sluice gates, it all goes into the housing bubble. Yeah, yeah. So QE being quantitative easing, the creation of new money to support um, financial asset markets and so on. At least that's what it's predominantly being used for here and around the world mm. in the last decade or so. Yeah, so LNP Senator Jared Rennick, Green Senator Nick McKim, who I mentioned, and One Nation Senator Malcolm Roberts have all raised this question. And I wanted to just reference the last confrontation on the 6th of April, where Rennick asked, if the government directed the RBA to create money through a quantitative easing program to build infrastructure such as dams, power stations and roads, um, you know, what would the RBA do? And Michelle Bullock, there was a whole back and forth and he had to drag it out of her. But mm. in the end, she said, well, if the government directed us to do that, that is a conversation that would have that would have to be had. Yes, it would. Well, as we just went through, though, um, there is a dispute resolution process in mm. the RBA Act and in the st Statement on Conduct of Monetary Policy which states that the government has the call on this. Yep. So if the government dares to do it, they have to go along yep. with it. The they RBA don't... has to do what it's told because the government owns the RBA. It's, you know, it's a public institution for all that it likes to be independent of government and independent of, you know, take its orders from abroad, from the, the global, the people who run the global financial system. 
Um, ultimately, it's owned by the Australian people via the government, and that's the rules. And they, that, yeah, they've got to do what they're told if they're told. And that means we have the capacity, you know, if we make enough noise and we push these politicians, the politicians can do it if they get the numbers, mm. right? If, they, if we force the government into a position where they have no choice, especially as there's an economic crisis crumbling down on all of our heads, um, this is something that is achievable to do. It's been done before in history, as we've seen with Curtin and Chifley. Um, under, you know, extraordinary conditions of war and economic depression. Um, so these powers still exist, they're on the books, they can be used. And uh, we'll put some links below of articles where we lay this out, you know, in black and white ink so it's a little bit easier if you want to understand it better. Um, but what we want to talk about now is the New Zealand Reserve Bank review because they've mm. had an ongoing review since 2017 and it's just very interesting because what has happened there uh, may be exactly a preview of what mm. you know we're going to see here because uh, their review has very much been dictated by external forces such as the IMF who had a lot to say about what they should use it to do. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll go through some of those details. Um, so this, as I said, started their review of the Reserve Bank of New Zealand um, started in November 2017. By August 2021, they actually rewrote their whole Reserve Bank of New Zealand Act 1989, and they replaced it with the Reserve Bank New Zealand Act 2021. Um, they're also implementing another new act called the Deposit Takers Act, which sounds good because it's going to include deposit insurance, mm. which New Zealand has never had before. This is expected to be legislated and get gotten through Parliament by the end of next year. However, it's not as good as what it sounds as we'll describe uh, because deposit insurance is has been put there to sidetrack people mm. from some very nasty things that are in this Deposit Takers Act. And one of those things um, has been knocked out of it already in, in a very excellent um, move and that's what is known as statutory bail-in. Yeah, so Deposit Takers Act is actually a, a, a sort of backhandedly appropriate name because what statutory bail-in is, for viewers who aren't familiar with the term, is that bail-in is what happened in Cyprus in 2013. The banks crashed, they were frozen, people's deposits were trimmed, the, uh, the haircut, as they call it. Um, so basically, you're an unsecured creditor not a customer, not a client, your money is not guaranteed um, beyond a certain limit, um, which varies from country to country. Uh, and yeah, so they, lo they lock the bank up, they keep it solvent on paper by stealing depositors' money, um, either outright or converting it into shares that you're not allowed to sell because um, they help trading and they're worthless anyway mm. because, you know, who's going to buy shares in a defunct bank, mm -hmm. the, the zombie bank, right? Mm. So. <laughs> um, these things exist in regulation um, and in New Zealand they already, it already exists in the legislation but it has to be approved by the government, um, by the finance minister or treasurer um, of the day. So what this statutory bail-in thing that the IMF was demanding is that that be uh, made an automatic process that would be done 
regardless of the elected government. It would just be done by the bureaucrats, the, mm. the Reserve Bank um, and the Treasury Department. Mm. It'll all be enshrined in law so that if there's a financial crisis and all these banks are suddenly going under, the Reserve Bank just bam, 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 just go through and uh, keep the banks open, which is why it's called open bank resolution, resolving the bank to keep it functioning mm. by having confiscated all these monies belonging to their creditors, yeah. people they owe money to, uh, in order to recapitalise the balance yeah. sheet. In the name of global financial stability. Exactly. Um, just purely to save financial markets that make money for big banks and don't do anything for the general public of any country, mm. let alone, let alone a, you know, New Zealand or Australia or wherever else they're pushing this stuff. Yeah. Now, um, so the New Zealand Cabinet had agreed to this in April um, last year, but by October, and we'll put this up on the screen, it put out, the Cabinet put out a, an announcement saying, well, they didn't make a song and dance about it, but this is the Cabinet paper showing it, and they basically, Cabinet said, we will rescind that decision because basically they said, we want to get this Deposit Takers Act bill through the Parliament in, mm. timely, in a timely fashion, and we're concerned it won't go through with this in it. You know, because it's quite controversial and what we've written before in the alert is that every country in the world that's got bail-in through got it through because they did it secretively and no one knew about it. But mm. places like India and Australia where it's been challenged, it's been prevented from going through, it's been blocked altogether or it has been held up, you know, yeah. over a significant time frame. Yeah. And then snuck through while nobody was paying attention like they did here in um, Valentine's Day 2018. Yeah, with eight... Eight, eight senators in the room, at least two of whom had no idea what was going on. Exactly. Um, so now I want to make another point about the deposit insurance though because New Zealand, as we said, never had this kind of insurance. But in 2017, the IMF conducted a financial sector assessment program. Um, and I might just say that this is kind of similar to what the IMF did one year after that famous Valentine's Day massacre when mm. on the February 2018 we got our legislation snuck through. A year later the IMF put out an assessment of Australia's financial stability and mm. they said your bail-in ain't good enough, you got to get a proper statutory bail-in and they specifically said in there, um, couldn't be more clear, that it had to be done in such a way where the government and the ministers could not interfere with the process of resolution with bail-in and the parliament could not interfere. So yeah, that it would all be done by APRA, the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, which is a bit of a worry given that the current head of it was seconded to the uh, Bank for International Settlements to develop this whole policy and then in, as deputy chair of APRA and then installed um, a couple of years later to uh, implement it. Mm. Yeah, so the IMF in this report um, that they sent to New Zealand in 2017, basically said, look, you've got to have a deposit insurance scheme to mitigate against bank runs by depositors who are panicked about having their savings bailed in because, you know, actually the word was getting out and we were helping to get it out that mm. New Zealand had bailed in, which most people had no idea about. We talked to New Zealanders quite a lot. Um, and so here's an excerpt from what that um, IMF report said. It says the open bank resolution framework Da, 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 is a step in the right direction, but to enhance its credibility and strengthen the financial safety net, the introduction of deposit insurance would be the best option. Uh, and it goes on. 
A June 2019 consultation um, by the Reserve Bank, which was part of this banking review process, this is a document called Safeguarding the Future of Our Financial System, confirmed that deposit insurance was offered just to smooth the way for these broader statutory bail-in powers um, to enable them to get it through because, oh, you'll be protected because you'll have this deposit insurance. Mm. As we've seen in Australia, it's not funded, it's not no protection whatsoever. And that June 2019 review document says the Reserve Bank Act already has systems that are recognised internationally as important for effective resolution, meaning the open bank resolution. However, as has been noted by the IMF and other stakeholders, New Zealand's crisis management regime falls short of best practice in some areas. And it then lists a number of points and says all of these reforms could potentially be implemented in New Zealand to bring the existing crisis management framework into line with best international best practice and provide more options in resolution decisions. So again, this is all confirming that this whole review was at the behest of the IMF saying, guys, you're not up to scratch, get, you know, get this in mm. order. And New Zealand cabinet papers, which I'll show now, reflect this reality um, and they, because they were debating whether to have a $50,000 limit and the cabinet said, we believe a 100,000 limit, limit would be better um, to mitigate uh, risks to stability, liquidity, etc., and later to strengthen the commitment of future government to use resolution tools. So again, you know, it's very, very clear uh, what this was oriented to, not to the benefit of New Zealanders, but to save the global financial system, which is at risk. Now, um, in this week's Australian Alert Service, you can read uh, another story and you can contact us for a copy of the alert. Um, if we haven't sent you one before, we'll send you out a complimentary sample and you can read this. Otherwise, we'll put the link to this particular article below um, because I wrote about how New Zealand pioneered bail-in. Uh, and this is actually quite interesting because New Zealand was one of the first countries to come up with a um, consolidated approach to this kind of bank rescue where you punish the creditors to save the bank. Um, <clears throat> as you can see from this um, uh, document from uh, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, they state that following the 1997 Asian financial crisis was when they proposed the first version of open bank resolution regarding they said one of the major issues, which was how to deal with the failure of a large bank in a way that would be consistent with the Reserve Bank's general approach to banking supervision, i.e. one which requires shareholders and creditors to bear the cost of a failure consistent with the market incentive approach. And then they say later, for the market incentive approach to banking supervision to work, the possibilities that a large bank could fail and that creditors could lose some of their money has to be credible. Um, and in this article, I go through a lot of different examples of people, you know, from the early 2000s onward, talking about, um, you know, why this has to be credible and you've got to be able to treat depositors as investors and make them judge where they're putting their money and so forth. Mm. Uh, and one of these <clears throat> former RBNZ Deputy Governors, Roderick Carr, literally said that bank creditors and depositors must stand ready to take their punishment when things go wrong. Mm. I mean, they were really, really blatant about it because, um, as you can read more about, uh, New Zealand's Reserve Bank was created in the first place 
at the suggestion of the British government, who at the time had sent Otto Niemeyer over here mm. to tell Australia to, you know, rein in our spending, um, stop putting yeah. the people first, and then he went over to New Zealand and made similar recommendations there. Yep. Yeah, um, one of the engineers of the Great Depression, make sure everybody shared the pain, right? Austerity, Austerity, yeah. all the rest of it. And then the first governor of the RBNZ was appointed literally by Montague Norman, by the head of the Bank of England himself. Oh. And, you know, there was a process there which was interesting because during the Great Depression, the government actually did take charge of the RBNZ for a while and there was a fight that ensued and we had similar fights here. But read more about it in the articles that I've mentioned. We'll, we want to move on to the next topic now. Uh, and that is secret conversations that ensure Aussie voters can't change foreign policy. So um, what we're talking about here is, a, is secretive annual talks that have been going on for 30 years uh, where we're allowing outsiders to tell us exactly what to do, particularly in regards to foreign policy. Um, no, it's not foreign interference from China. Nope. Uh, this is the Australian-American leadership dialogue that we're talking about. And the latest one has just wrapped up uh, in Washington, D.C. Peter Dutton was there. Uh, but it's always a bipartisan show. You always have people from both sides mm. of politics. Yep. And from the major media, you know, opinion yeah. makers, a.k.a. propagandists, but we only call them that in countries we don't like. Right? Yeah, and that's important because, you know, the, the foreign policy has to be preempted by the media where they put out the line so that when mm. the government puts forward the policy, the people are going to accept it. So, it's, you know, this is how we're trying to change things by getting people to think differently and call their MPs and you've got a whole different um, force there at play that comes into this. But um, so these talks, I mean, it's funny, you know, because Robbie Barwick wrote it up for the, for the alert service and I, mm. I said to him before doing the show, so what came out of this latest, me latest meeting? And of course, no one knows because no. it's all literally the rules are you can't divulge yeah. what goes on there. Yeah, it's like Fight Club. Nobody talks about yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> so sorry, I can't give you a report on what happened there, but nonetheless... Um, we wanted to say a little bit about the background of this as described in the alert service because the, this was the brainchild, this dialogue, of a guy called Phil Scanlon who's an um, Australian businessman, was the CEO of Coca-Cola Amatil and he apparently proposed this to George Bush Senior when he was in Australia in 1991. Um, Scanlon, uh, he died in 2019 but he was Oxford, Harvard trained, uh, close to a lot of big British and intelligence bigwigs over there. Uh, he also worked as an aide to Peter Coleman, uh, a journalist and sometime Liberal Member of Parliament, who was also Peter Costello's father-in-law and part of the Australian Congress for Cultural Freedom, which is an anti-communist CIA offshoot. Again, part of the whole propaganda networks. Yeah, Cold War propaganda outfit. Mm, exactly. Um, and just to note also that the new CEO of the Australian-American Leadership Dialogue is Costello's former staffer, Tony Smith. So it's always these same tight networks. Yeah, the guy who was just recently Speaker of the House of, Parli the House of Representatives in the Australian Parliament. Mm. Um, so, yeah, these guys go off to their little retreats and come back full of policies, directions and ideas and provocations and whatnot, which we're in the midst of now vis-a-vis -vis Russia and China and the mm. world being on the knife's edge of world war. 
yet again. Um, and one of the people who's been speaking out against the danger of war, particularly in regard to China, is former Prime Minister Paul Keating, who we don't agree with on a lot oh, yeah. of things. No, um, as we've said before, like we've we've taken exception, we've taken Keating to cut to task on his economic policies um, for you know basically the entire existence of this party because he started the deregulation that got us into this economic mess we're in now. That said, on foreign policy, he's generally he's always he was always generally quite good, and in fact, he's the last. Australian Prime Minister who ever had anything approaching an independent foreign policy, um, which, you know, his view of Australia's best interest was, as he put it last November at this um, uh, famous, now famous speech at the uh, National Press Club, was that, you know, here we are still trying to find our security from Asia rather than in Asia. So mm. his idea was um, strategic partnership with Indonesia, with ASEAN more broadly, um, and, you know, economic and and strategic integration into the region mm. um, instead but you know uh, and no the everyone since then John Howard onwards is just like no we're just going back to tie ourselves back onto the coattails of of the uh, of Britain and the United States yeah and here's uh, I want to remind people some people might have heard it before of what Keating has had to say about the Australian American leadership dialogue because it's so incisive um, it really hits the nail on the head so he, there's two quotes here. He said, we've got into this almost sort of crazy position now where the American alliance, instead of simply being a treaty, where the United States is obliged to consult with us in the event of adverse strategic circumstances, it has now taken on a reverential, sacramental, there's that word again, <laughs> uh, quality. It's like a sacrament. I'm not talking about simply the government. I'm talking about some people on the labour side as well. Uh, and then he went on in a different quote saying, there's a view, there was a thing called the Australian-American Dialogue, which by the way I never attended, which is a sort of a cult thing that's gone on for years and I don't know what the Americans put in the drinking water, but whenever the Australians come back they're all bowing and scraping and going on. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's exactly in a nutshell why we've raised it here today because um, we're at a point where if Australia doesn't make the decision to adopt an independent foreign policy, mm. we're going to be at war again as we were in World War One and World War Two, burying a lot of our young yeah, simply, men and women. Simply because our quote-unquote allies, our great and powerful friends, mm. decide to go to war and so we just automatically go with them. And another thing I wanted to raise as an example of the kind of groupthink that goes on in these forums. Uh, Richard, you wrote an article this week in the alert service on Huawei. Um, Indonesia is not worried about working with them, not right? Can you give a bit of a sense of that? Yeah, so here, here Albanese's government, they're still running around um, trying to convince the region that chi everything Chinese is a security threat, right? Um, Cyber security, military bases that aren't planned and will never exist. Um, and Labor itself has had a vendetta, Canberra in general has had a vendetta against Huawei um, at least since 2012 when they, the Gillard government banned them from tendering for contracts for the national broadband network. Um, and so here we are running around lecturing everybody on, on security issues. Indonesia doesn't view Huawei and smaller compatriot companies like ZTE is, a, is probably the second biggest one. Um, they, they don't view them as a threat at all. They're, they're 
trusted partners mm. in developing their digital infrastructure and training their uh, institutional leaders, including government officials, mm. intelligence officials and all, in cybersecurity. Um, their, their training, there's a report came out, uh, it was done by a, uh, one gentleman from ASPE, um, interestingly enough, mm. um, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, which has been the, you know, Australia's China basher in chief for at least a decade. Um, but this, this young guy um, and two um, academics from the Australian National University uh, wrote a paper uh, on, uh, it was published by uh, an American, um, an old school American think tank um, called the Carnegie Endowment mm -hmm. for International Peace. Um, and they're just going, they go through in uh, quite a bit of detail how Huawei is, it, it's earned a reputation over decades for fair dealing, for trustworthiness, for addressing security concerns that are right, technical concerns. Um, and it was doing this in Britain and offered to do it in, in Australia as well. Mm. They, they built and funded a centre where um, signals intelligence agencies, GCHQ in the uh, case of Britain, their national cyber security centre, um, could analyse all of their equipment, uh, all the source code for that, because they do digital infrastructure as well as mobile devices. They do the whole spectrum, the whole gamut. Um, they offered to do that here in 2012 to address the Gillard government's concern. They got knocked back. They offered again when the 5G stuff came up under uh, Turnbull, Malcolm Turnbull, Liberal government in the uh, in 2017-18, mm. and were knocked back again. Um, the Indonesians, uh, they're, uh, so they're they're hiring Huawei is doing a lot of this at its own expense. They're they're training a hundred thousand people in. Um, world-class cybersecurity training um, in the next five years. And these researchers say, yeah, we were skeptical of that, but we looked at the numbers and, and that is actually what's happening. Mm. Um, their Huawei and ZTE are the two main contractors for all of that, because you know Indonesia is a huge archipelago with um, a lot of logistical issues in getting things physically connected. So they're building fiber optics, they're building um, you know, mobile relays, the whole, the whole thing, um, because Indonesia has no native tech sector like that, that, that they would need to develop this. And so, yeah, they've, they're very happy to work with uh, Huawei. And it's, a, you know, it's not just altruism on their part. It's mm. what the liberal ethicists used to call enlightened self-interest. The more you do for your customers, the more they keep being your customers, mm. buy more stuff from you. Yeah. You know, um, it's just good business. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> and, but Australia's point of view, I mean, we're... <laughs> We're not acting in our self-interest by blocking out these kind of um, no. commercial arrangements. And you can see the group think, as I said, because Gillard had banned, as you said, um, uh, Huawei from the NBN. And then you see it's a classic example of Turnbull because he came in as communications minister under Abbott and mm. actually tried to look at reviewing that and yeah, maybe he, reversing it. Yeah, he ridiculed Gillard um, quite rightly at the time. And then when they announced that ban, so that was stupid. Yeah. So all you're doing is guaranteeing that you will pay much more to competing companies for gear that's no better and arguably not as good. Mm. Um, he tried to review it in 2018, uh, 2015, I should say, mm. uh, as you said, as um, when he came in as the uh, communications minister, uh, uh, 2013, I should say. Um, but then from um, uh, 2015 onwards, 
you know, when he got yeah. in the big chair yeah. and he's got the security agencies in his mm -hmm. ear. Um, you saw the shift. And he, they, they derided him as a panda hugger. Yep. Uh, and the, the most pro-China PM since, men, since uh, uh, Whitlam. Mm. Uh, and in two years, he'd become a China hawk and yep. was banning Huawei. From panda hugger to China hawk in two short years. Yep. And yeah, this kind of um, forum like the Australian-American Leadership Dialogue is a big part of making that happen from mm -hmm. every angle. As you said, the media, the politicians, you know, the propaganda that goes on. Um, and we're swamped with that at the moment. And um, to conclude the show, I wanted to reference the, and we plugged it last week as well, but it has come out in the interim. And that's the Citizens Insight interview that Robert Barwick did with Matt Robson, uh, the former New Zealand F Assistant Foreign Minister, Deputy Foreign Minister. Um, and he talks about a number of very, very fascinating things. And I'll, actually, I'll just put up this headline because they talk about how there's a big backlash in New Zealand coming from uh, all kinds of political figures, including, as they call them, Labor royalty people like Helen Clark. And you see the headline where she warns against groupthink in New Zealand foreign relations. So people are becoming very cognizant of this. Um, but um, one of the things, I mean, people really need to watch it because I was quite blown away myself and I haven't even finished watching it yet. But um, one of the things he said, Matt Robson said outright, is that Australia and New Zealand are at war with Russia. We are technically and legally at war with Russia. We are supplying the weapons that are killing Russians. Yep. Now, you think about the impact of that. That's bad enough. Then you think about what if the US and the UK do the similar operation vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan mm -hmm. that they've done with Ukraine. Can anyone envision Australia saying, oh, no, we're not going along with that right now under the current <laughs> framework? No, not, not uh, there's, there's no, as things stand now, there's no credible chance of that happening that I can see. And what that locks us into war with China in this region where we're a target, yep. um, you know, every capital city in this country. So where, the question is, when are we going to break out of this cult of not just the Australian-American leadership dialogue, but our entire dangerous alliance, as Malcolm mm. Fraser term, uh, termed it? Yeah and actually start to think for ourselves and fashion our own policy. Yep, exactly. And again, as Keating said last November, you know, if, if uh, cause Howard, he, he signed a treaty with, the, with Indonesia as the starting point for all of this. Howard scrapped it a few years later and he said, where are we now? We're nowhere. Um, so we'd better, we'd better get moving right quick on it. Absolutely, it's a matter of the utmost importance. So um, make sure to raise that if you do end up in a conversation with your MP because I just wanted to remind people um, before we sign out, uh, don't forget to look up our press release and contact your Member of Parliament to urge them to support the legislation for the People's Postal Bank. That's your job for the week, so get on to it. Um, that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Elisa. Thanks for tuning in and see you again next week. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.